In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Lights be too wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired! I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Cue the orchestra. It's time to enter the symphony hall as we reminisce about the biggest Disney IMAX event ever. 20 years ago, Fantasia 2000 premiered and continued Walt Disney's legacy of offering an outlet for experimental animation matched with classical music. One person was greatly involved in making Fantasia 2000 is joining me again. It is Dave Bossert. And in this continued conversation, we talk about his role on the project, working with Roy Disney on this effort, and some of his short film projects since. So let's get into the conversation with Dave Bossert. So I am back with author, animator, extraordinary Dave Bossert to talk about his many projects for Disney. In our last discussion, we talked about his book, Remembering Roy E. Disney, and recognizing what would have been Roy's 90th anniversary um, on January 10th. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about another really big project under Dave's uh, set of experiences, and which involved Roy very prominently, which is Fantasia 2000. But uh, first off, welcome back, Dave. Really appreciate you being on. Thanks for having me, Brett. Uh, I'm always happy to be back, and uh, uh, it's always great to, to chat about uh, all things Disney. So we're here today to talk about a project that I've really appreciated a lot over the years as at opening day on January, when it was the turn of the new millennium on January 1st, 2000. I recall seeing Fantasia 2000 and really being mesmerized and knowing that I would appreciate the film even more um, as I got older. And so it's really um, such an honor to talk with someone like you, who really was very instrumental in making this project happen alongside Roy Disney and many other folks. Yeah, I, you know, I have to say, it, you know, that's one of the most memorable films I ever worked on. And I worked on some pretty memorable films. But I, you know, I, I was on that movie for about five years uh and and i was one of the very early people to get added to the project 
And so, you know, it was an honor to work on it. That's for sure. Because to me, it was, it was a concept that, you know, the concert film was a concept that Walt Disney had come up with, with the original Fantasia and, and followed it on with some other package pictures in the 1940s. And, and so this was Roy's way of honoring uh, his uncle's vision and carrying on that concept. Absolutely. And in, indeed, I feel like, and we're going to certainly talk about um, different aspects of the film in its totality, it really is a very seamless continuation of, of that tradition. And I'm wondering, Dave, since you, you were involved on the project for quite a long time, do you recall the moment when you were enlisted or oh yes i do can you talk Absolutely. about that yeah it's kind of a crazy story because you know um uh, i was working on pocahontas i was doing some some design work uh, early effects designs uh for pocahontas and i i got uh um I got called down to Peter Schneider's office and Peter Schneider was the president of, of Walt Disney animation studios at the time. And <clears throat> I went down to his office, which was in another building over in Glendale. We were, the animation group was still in a series of, of like one story warehouse buildings over by Walt Disney Imagineering at that point. And, uh, and I was, uh, I was actually, working in an office in the building which is now the um uh, uh walt disney uh animation research library the arl uh anyway so i get called down to peter's office and i walk in and he had one of these buttons under under his desk that he you know if somebody walked into the office he he pressed the button and the door uh, like a latch released and the door closed behind you, and uh, and so he told me come in sit down. I sat on his sofa. He pulled up a chair in front of me, uh, and he said he wanted me to uh, to go on to Fantasia two thousand, and and at the time that picture internally was a very troubled picture. And they were kind of, it was sort of a way station, really, for artists uh, to, work, you know, finish out a contract before they left the company. So I looked at him straight on and I said, you know, what's going on here? You know, why, why me? You know, and, uh, you know, we, we had a very candid conversation about it. And, and we ended the conversation by me saying, look, you know, I'll, let me think it over. And he agreed, you know, go and talk to people who are working on the project and, and see what you think. And I, and I said, you know, give me, give me a week or so. And he said, not a problem. And, and so that's what I did. I went off and, and the first, the first people I met with was the producer, Don Ernst and uh, the supervising director who was Hendel Butoy. And, uh, you know, Hendel had, uh, had co-directed uh, Rescuers Down Under, and, uh, you know, he was well-respected at the studio. And, and I went down and I talked to those guys to find out, like, you know, what, what's the deal with the project? You know, is the film actually gonna be made? Uh, you know, there was some internal um, 
issues with you know some some executives feeling like it wasn't really a commercial film which you know fantasia really isn't it's it to me it's it's animation for animation's sake it's art for art's sake so um you know there there was some issues there um and uh you know uh, jeffrey katzenberg who was heading the studio at the time wasn't a big fan of the project uh so you know there were there were a lot of cross currents and a lot of dynamics going on on that project and so i talked with with don ernst and i talked with hendel and then i went off and i talked to some folks that were working on the first the first sequence that was in production which was somewhat in trouble if you will it, it, it was, there were some issues going on with it uh, and that was the pines of rome sequence and and so i went and, and talked with some of the various people that were working on that and uh and i think it was probably a week and a half two weeks later i was in my office and and peter came into my office and uh, plopped down in, in my Chem Weber lounge chair and uh, said, you know, well, boss, what do you think? He used to call me boss, B-O-S-S, -S, not boss, boss. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, I said, you know, if, if you're serious about this movie getting made and, um, you know, you're going to put the resources to it to get it done, uh, then I, I'm willing to go on to the project. But I said in six, six, seven months, you know, if, if the shoe doesn't fit, I, I want to know that I can bail off of it and go back on to Pocahontas or whatever other project was going on. And he said, you got my word on that. And we shook hands and, and that was the end of it. And, and I never went back to him to say, I want to get off this project because I just dove head first into it. And, you know, I had to build an effects crew from the ground up and, uh, you know, uh, really dig into Pines of Rome and, and get that back on track. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it was it was a little bit of a bumpy start on it. But when, once we got going and once that commitment was there, we, we got that film finished, you know, and it was it was due to an incredible crew of people. I mean, we had we had great directors and uh, great sequences that that were being done. And we had terrific animators working on the project. And, you know, it really the, the, the whole thing came together. Indeed. Well, the final product is, is nothing short of astonishing. And I'm wondering, because there is such a, a, a unique demonstration of animation, so many different forms, what, was, what were some of the responsibilities that are associated with a, a visual effects supervisor? Well, you know, it's funny you should ask that because one one of the things that was uh, uh, that I said to Peter initially because they they wanted me to go on as what what they were calling at that time uh, artistic coordinator. It, it was sort of like a production artistic supervisor position uh, on the whole film, and and I said at the time that I would do it but I wanted to also be the visual effects supervisor uh, because that was my background. And, and I felt like I could do both roles together and, and they agreed and they let me do it. And so, you know, on the visual effects front, uh, it's really, I always explain visual effects uh, as being anything 
that's animating on screen other than the characters and the background. Uh, and so, you know, that could be, uh, like in the firebird sequence, you know, the lava, uh, the lava creature, uh, the spring sprite, uh, that had, you know, was a combination of hand drawn and, and CG particle effects and things like that. So, uh, and it wasn't just the hand-drawn effects, it was also camera, optical effects, compositing effects, things like that. Gotcha, gotcha. What, was there a particular challenging aspect of uh, one sequence that really stands out in your mind as, wow, I'm, I'm so glad we were able to accomplish that? Well, you know, I think that each one of the sequences within Fantasia 2000 had its own set of challenges. I mean, if you look at... Um, uh, Carnival of the Animals, for instance, you know, Eric Goldberg was the director, his wife Sue Goldberg was the art director. Uh, it was a very small group of people that worked on that. And essentially what we were trying to accomplish was creating a uh, moving watercolor. And, and I think, you know, again, you know, utilizing uh, some uh, visual effects techniques and things like that helped accomplish that goal. Uh, but if you look at something like the Firebird sequence, the Firebird sequence was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Spring Sprite was blending, uh, you know, CG elements with hand-drawn elements. Um, we were doing uh, lava, and, and one of the things that I wanted to see happen with the lava creature was I wanted it to be different than the lava that they did in the Rite of Spring sequence in the original Fantasia in 1940. And one of the big differences was that with Fantasia 2000, we added this, this crust level, if you will, and, and the lava was actually a character, it was a creature. Uh, and so that took quite a bit to do those drawings. And I have to tell you, the, the supervising effects animator for, for um, the uh, Fantasia, uh, the, excuse me, for the Firebird sequence, the, uh, one of my top animators was a guy named Ted Kiersey, who was a, was a veteran of the studio. And, and he, he just did a spectacular job uh, on the lava creature and I have to tell you, some of those drawings uh, took eight to ten hours each to do for that uh, for that creature in some wow. of the in some of the more elaborate scenes. And um, and, and the payoff was there. One funny story I'll, I'll tell you: uh, while we were working on that sequence, uh, you know, we oftentimes when we had a completed scene, we'd do some color prints to pin up onto a storyboard. Uh, and literally, uh, one of my animators on that project, uh, got into an argument in the hallway with, with a CG artist who was working on a different project. And she was claiming that the lava was done, uh, CG and, and, and the animator was saying, no, no, it's, it's all done by hand. And she says, no, it's not. It was done on the computer. You know, she, she just wouldn't give in. It was very funny. Uh, I thought we had a little bit of a laugh about it. Yeah. Well, it's what was so amazing in, in watching the film is, and it, I feel like it's really reflective of the era um, in which it was taking place where we we're seeing so much more CG incorporated into the films like Tarzan, which came out the year before, where we have these 
trees and Tarzan as a traditionally um, hand-drawn animated character swing through the vines. And then in Fantasia 2000, we see so many different mechanisms uh, or types of animation being illustrated at once. Was I, I, I would imagine that uh, accounted for certain challenges that the animators experienced. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, there was a lot of challenges and problem solving that went on uh, on on Fantasia 2000 because we were doing some things that hadn't been done before, and uh, you know, we, we there was a lot of trial and error that went on, uh, but I think it was important to do that because. You know, it, it, it was a continuation of, you know, the original Fantasia. And, uh, you know, they did some spectacular work with less technology than we had when we were working on Fantasia 2000. So, you know, for me, um, you know, again, each one of the sequences uh, had some level of challenges to it. Did you did you find that you gravitated toward uh, one particular sequence among uh, there's seven of them correct? Yeah, there was uh, essentially six new sequences, uh, and uh, and then the uh, the restored Sorcerer's Apprentice that we did, um, and the six sequences represented each decade that had passed since the original 1940 Fantasia was released. Ah, so symbolism there, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Among the six new sequences, were you really inclined to say that well, one's your favorite, or are there particular aspects that uh, you appreciate from each of them? You know, I I have to say, um, I had I had a really great crew of people on most of the film, but the the Firebird sequence really stands out because. Um, you know, the, uh, Paul and Gaetan Britzi, uh, the Britzi brothers uh, from France, directed that sequence. They were hugely talented guys and really fun to work with. I, I had a really great uh, time working on that uh, particular sequence. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed working on all of them. Uh, you know, it was challenging uh, from a registration standpoint uh, to add hand-drawn eyes to computer-generated whales back in the 1990s. I mean, it's a lot easier to do things like that now. But back then, there were, uh, there were stabilization issues uh, that had to be resolved. And, you know, again, we, we had uh, terrific software engineers that could write software. Uh, we had terrific technicians that, uh, well, you know, knew the CAP system that we were doing the compositing in. It was really a great group of people that came together to do that project. And I think everybody loved working on it. You know, for, that, was, that was just my impression from uh, it was just a special group of people working on a very special film. And, and it seems like that all of you were really leveraging a lot of the techniques that had been utilized in, in previous Disney animation, as well as um, per what you're saying, the notion of of having the, the traditionally animated eyes on the whales, which seems like it, it really was a major challenge and undertaking. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it, you know, these were these were things that were being done really in some instances for the first time. Um, uh, you know, back in, you know, you're talking 1996, 97, that we were working on some of that stuff. And uh, the software that we were working with 
is you it's not even uh you couldn't put a candle to uh um you know that stuff uh compared to what they have today you know the the software is so robust today that they're using that a lot of these techniques are you know there's nothing to it but but back in in the 1990s you know there there were absolutely some challenges that we had to overcome and we did you know it was just a matter of of, of the the time and effort that that they put into it gotcha dave to what degree were those of you on the fantasia 2000 team communicating with um animators and um different folks uh involved in other projects at in, in feature animation at the time, so those that were under production in terms of oh, I, I mean, the, it, it was one big family, and and I have to tell you, from sequence to sequence, we had people coming on board that had rolled off other projects, came on to work on a sequence or or two before they went on to something else. Uh, so you know, there there was a, a bit of musical chairs going on uh, from sequence to sequence with with different people and as other films were ending and other films were starting up there was a reallocation of uh, production management people and so you know there there were always new faces depending on what sequence we were working on gotcha and speaking of musical chairs and how um, certain productions have uh, various timelines what uh, it's my understanding that Fantasia 2000 originally was going to be released a bit earlier. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think originally they were looking at it as it was going to go out as Fantasia Continued, which was the original title. And I think that was, you know, they initially thought it was going to release in 1998. And then it became Fantasia 99. And it was going to release in 1999. And then somebody said, let's release it for the beginning of the new millennium. And, you know, it became Fantasia 2000. And also, there were less new sequences. And that, that was the other thing. They were originally only going to do a handful of new sequences, and they were going to have more of the old sequences. Because Walt's original vision of Fantasia was that it was an ever-evolving film, and it was always going out to the theaters. And so you might have three or four of the original sequences and two or three new sequences. And so uh, that was the initial thought. They were going to uh, keep in Dance of the Hours. They were going to keep in Night on Bald Mountain. Of course, Sorcerer's Apprentice. And and as the film was evolving, you know, uh, more of the old sequences were dropping away until we were just left with the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence from the original. And that went through an extensive restor digital restoration for the release in Fantasia 2000. And then, uh, and, and as those older sequences dropped away, they were backfilling with these new pieces of music and new, uh, new uh, animation sequences. Gotcha. So what was the ultimate rationale behind Sorcerer's Apprentice as being the sole sequence from the original to be retained? Well, I think I think it's the iconic sequence from the original Fantasia. I think when you when, whenever you see anything associated with Fantasia, you always see Mickey in in the robe with the blue sorcerer's hat on his head, and, and that's just an, an iconic image. 
Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And I, um, and I, I think there's just so many other um, beautiful sequences from the original that thankfully through subsequent releases uh, like Blu-ray, we were able to see them in uh, much higher quality than previous uh, editions. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, you know, and again, you know, the original concept of Fantasia was this ever-changing film. And so, you know, I, 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 I have to tell you that uh, uh, prior to, to Roy passing away, uh, we were actually having conversations and, and throwing ideas up onto a board uh, of what the next Fantasia would be. And, and it was going to be sort of a Fantasia world and it was going to have world music segments to it. Uh, and, and I thought that was a, a great concept and it's a great way to continue that franchise. Um, and, and frankly, you know, it would have been a, a great way to, uh, uh, you know, they, they do these short films, uh, at the studios. And, and I think if, if somebody had a longer term vision, you could do some of these, uh, short films, uh, with the idea that, after so many years, you gather them all together and stitch them into a Fantasia-like feature. Oh, that would be fantastic. And we're definitely seeing a wave of that with Disney Plus and the Short Circuit series and all these different yeah. platforms. Exactly. You know, so and and frankly, it wouldn't be that hard to, to pull some of that material together and 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 make it into a concert feature. Yeah, I'm. I, I totally am with you there. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, Roy a minute ago. One um, one thing that struck me from your Roy Disney book was that you mentioned um, kind of what later in his life you were showing him, or or you and your colleagues were showing him a test that involved translating the Firebird Firebird Suite sequence into 3D. Um, could you elaborate on that? Were there plans on converting Fantasia 2000 into 3D? Well, I, you know, I think that, you know, as you know, the company uh, is always looking at at different ways of uh, reconstituting existing material, um, and you know, they 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 took Lion King, the original animated Lion King, and they also took uh, Beauty and the Beast and made those into uh, IMAX versions, into 3D films, you know. So, you know, from my standpoint, uh, yeah, it, it, it would have been a natural evolution to see if you could create a, uh, a 3D version of uh, the Firebird. Uh, not, not just the Firebird, but, I mean, of, uh, of Fantasia 2000. It was completely doable, I'll put it to you that way. Gotcha. So there at least was some interest in entertaining that idea is what I gather? Yeah, I, I think so. But I, I think, you know, largely, uh, you know, my view is, is that, uh, you know, uh, the notion of doing any more Fantasia films probably died when Roy passed away, you know? Mm, yeah. Because he he was really the the champion of, of getting Fantasia 2000 done. And, and actually got Michael Eisner to allocate money from the re- the VHS release of the original Fantasia, some portion of the profits from that VHS release were allocated to making Fantasia 2000. I, I find that to be absolutely incredible and awesome. And 
And is it am I am I correct that Fantasia was one of the original classic Disney animated films that was among the the last to finally debut on VHS? Yeah, that one and Snow White. Those right, were the okay. two that were sort of the last ones in uh, in the vault, if you will, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, were the last to go out onto VHS. And again, there, there was lots of conversations behind the scenes uh, in the corporate offices with Roy and Michael Eisner and, and some of the executives about, uh, about putting those films out. Because you have to realize, Prior to VHS, some of the bread and butter uh, for for the studio was re-releasing those classic films into the movie theaters. Right. Uh, you know, every every five or seven years, they had a new you know a new audience of children for Peter Pan and Jungle Book and you know Cinderella and those films, and uh, and so they they were always doing these re-releases over the years. So um, I, I think that there was a major shift in, you know, uh, how, how they were viewing those with the advent of the new home entertainment technology, so starting with VHS. But I think as we've seen, you know, they released the VHS, then they released the DVD, then they did the special edition DVDs, then they did the Blu-rays, and they had special editions and anniversaries, and, you know, I, I mean, it's like, you know, you could have probably, you know, 10 or 12 versions of those films with different bonus materials and all kinds of stuff, uh, the way they marketed it. Yeah, that, that seems uh, very, very prevalent. And uh, speaking of re-releases, I'm, I'm curious. So as we all know, Fantasia 2000 debuted uh, at the turn of the millennium, but it was about um, five months later in, in June 2000 that it actually was released in regular movie theaters for a period. Yeah, I, I honestly, I have to tell you, I, I, I just think that it was that I think they blew it. Uh, in the release of that film mm -hmm. because, you know, it was great that they released it in IMAX, but, but then after its IMAX run, like at the tail end of the IMAX run, it should have gone wide into theaters, uh, and it didn't. It sort of disappeared for a period of time and then reemerged in the regular theaters, and at that point, it, it was an also-ran, you know what I mean? Right, yeah, and I was always very curious about that because... It it was re it was re released or re re uh, I can't even talk. It was released in, into regular movie screens a mere month after Dinosaur had come out. So that was also very odd in its own right. Yeah, it it, it was again. I I didn't quite agree with that strategy, but it was what it was, you know. And and, and therefore, you know, because the film did incredibly well in IMAX. In fact, out here in Los Angeles, down in Culver City, they built a temporary IMAX theater uh, right by Howard Hughes Parkway. And, you know, it, it was a big deal, I thought. Well, and and the notion of IMAX, and it's certainly changed over the years, but it's it's almost akin to event cinema, where it's like it's something that it's meant to be seen on the biggest screen possible. And I think the notion of Fantasia 2000 with its incredible artistry and unique storytelling really lent itself to that type of uh, experience. Well, I agree. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, 
from from my standpoint, I, I don't know if if you if you were aware of it. I'm sure you are. But uh, the film did open uh, uh, on January first, two thousand. <laughs> but it actually premiered at Carnegie Hall, and there was a series of concerts, live concerts at Carnegie Hall in New York in December of nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, and I was uh, I. Um, I was going to ask you along the lines of the initial reception, what was it like in terms of both the experience and also your reaction to to folks' reviews of the film? Well, I have to say, um, I thought that it, 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 it got an incredible reaction at Carnegie Hall. I was at the opening night concert uh, with James Levine conducting, and it was a star-studded event. I mean, it was pretty amazing uh, to see it in that venue and to see it with a live orchestration and, you know, and, and, and just to see just the diverse crowd that was there. I mean, it was kind of a who's who. Uh, uh, I, I, the, the one thing I always remember is like two rows in front of me was Keith Richards sitting there, you know, uh, watching, watching Fantasia 2000. And I thought, how cool was that to have one of the founding members of the Rolling Stones sitting there appreciating, uh, this animated film that we all work so hard on. Oh, absolutely. Well, I could, I could imagine a, a lot of, um, folks and for different interpretations viewing Fant the original Fantasia to and to some degree Fantasia 2000 as a as a psychedelic experience because there's so many intriguing visuals oh yeah you know I mean that was always the running joke about the original Fantasia especially when they did re-releases in the 60s and 70s you know uh you know people getting high and going to see that film <laughs> But I, I, I recently rewatched Fantasia 2000, and I probably had seen it uh, several years ago. Um, but I, I was so, so incredibly moved by, um, especially the the Firebird sweet sequence, and thinking about the the horrible wildfires, bushfires that have struck Australia and that are so prevalent now. And I, I feel like that scene, it, it's just almost cathartic to just see the notion of regeneration of life. Yeah, you know, I mean, as terrible as those wildfires are, and, you know, I, I live out in California, so, you know, every year we have wildfires out here, and they seem to be getting bigger and worse every year, you know, with climate change. But uh, I, I do also have to say that, you know, the uh, when you look at the firebird, you know, na nature is, you know, uh, uh, awesome. You know, because, it, you know, a lot of these fires start with, you know, lightning strikes and, you know, and, and they they sort of burn burn out a, a large area. And within, you know, a year you see, you know, actually within months when it starts raining, you start to see all the new growth coming in, you know, and it's sort of it's it's nature's cycle, uh, if you will. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I love about Fantasia 2000, especially compared to a lot of, um, I feel like every Disney film is special in its own way, but I feel like Fantasia 2000 is unique in that it really attends to such a wide variety of social issues and experiences in a, a really poignant ma manner, whether it's Rhapsody in Blue and touching on the Great Depression or Firebird Suite and thinking about um, 
climate change or just or or you know natural disasters that we experience there's there's some there's a, something to be taken away from every part of the movie well you know i think i think really what the underlying theme for fantasia and for fantasia 2000 is is hope uh it, it, there's always hope uh, when you look at any of those sequences, you know, uh, the forest gets destroyed, but, uh, it, it, there's a rebirth that happens. Uh, you know, uh, the Rhapsody, the Rhapsody sequence is, you know, uh, yeah, you're in the depression era, but, uh, the, it all, it all comes together and it's all good at the end, you know, and everybody's happy and there's hope. Uh, and, and that's what I love about the whole project. Well, and kind of on the theme of hope, my, my last Fantasia 2000 uh, related question for you is uh, literally, what do you hope um, is the lasting impact of what I believe, and I'm sure others do too, is a very highly underrated piece of work? Well, you know, I, I view Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 as, as works of art. And, and that's really what they are. I mean, they're films, uh, they're, they're for entertainment, but, but they're also uh, works of art. They're animation for animation's sake, art for art's sake, as I said uh, very early on with this interview. And, and I think that because they are works of art, they will last into perpetuity, you know, for generations and generations to watch. And, you know, the music is timeless and the animation is timeless. Uh, and I think that, the, you know, a uh, hundred years from now, people will watch those films, uh, I hope, uh, and, and equally be, uh, enjoy them and be touched by them in, in so many different ways. Uh, just, just like when you look at a, a, a painting in a museum, um, you know, a painting will have a visceral effect on uh, people in different ways. Uh, and I think that those films are the same. Uh, they strike, each sequence strikes people differently. Yeah, it, it has that effect. I, when, as I said, I was watching it, Fantasia 2000 again. Uh, very recently, and I, I, I'm not one to to cry easily when watching a film, but the Firebird sequence just really struck me in that way, and it's just the the pure beauty and and symbolism behind it, and I think that's what a a true piece of work can can do in in resonating with an audience. Yes, I agree with you completely. Um, and you know, again, I think also, you know, when I look at a Fantasia or Fantasia 2000. I, I look at, at these films as, as being, um, you know, symbols of the Walt Disney Company and, and what the Walt Disney Company stands for. Indeed. I'm wondering, kind of shifting gears a little bit, because I, I also want to recognize your role on, on a variety of other projects in addition uh, to Fantasia 2000. We, we talked about the role of, of short films and, and being so important in, in the Walt Disney Company. D Disney Plus, it's it's serving as a platform for some of these shorts from many decades ago or those that have been released but to smaller audiences to, to finally get their visibility. What are, what are your thoughts on, on the platform and serving that purpose? Well, you know, I think what's terrific about uh, Disney Plus or any of the streaming platforms is that it's entertainment on demand. Uh, and 
the Walt Disney Company, uh, by and large, has done an incredible job of uh, not only uh, maintaining their library, but you know, restoring and preserving the library uh, of films that they have. And so, you know, there's an incredible amount of material that they're going to be able to put up on Disney Plus that will be there on demand for people who want to watch it. Uh, and I, I think that's fantastic. Um, I know years ago I did a project with, um, with corporate brand, uh, on, uh, they were called have a laughs. We took some of the early cartoons that were seven, eight minute cartoons and we cut them down to, uh, uh, two and three minute versions that still maintain the story arc. And, and some people were like outraged that we were doing that. But my philosophy was, you know, this is exactly what Walt was doing. Walt was, was, you know, cutting stuff up and slicing things and reconstituting it for the wonderful world of Disney and, uh, and the parks and things like that. And, and so, you know, to be able to do that, and they were using them as interstitials on the Disney Channel, and so I thought that was terrific because people would be able to see a shortened version of a cartoon and know that there was this longer version. And so that older material was getting new life uh, and, and being exposed to new audiences. And I thought it was terrific. Uh, and I was fully, you know, fully behind it. And they, and they did it, you know, they, they put the budget up for it to do it in a quality way. It wasn't just going in and, and chopping it up in editorial. It was, you know, going in and, you know, a lot of those early cartoons had, had mono tracks and we went in and re-recorded music and we re-recorded the music to the cut down version. So there were no, uh, jumps or anything like that. And, uh, and I think they turned out very well and, uh, and again, it, it wasn't to replace what was uh, done. It was to come. It was to use what was done to come up with something else. So you're creating a new product, and you're exposing a new audience to that. Uh, and you still have those original films, and, and many of those original films have been restored, and they look beautiful. So you know, kudos to the Walt Disney Company for for doing that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. And kind of speaking of interesting, unique shorts that you've been involved in, uh, one that I've always enjoyed, but it's been hard to find is Runaway Brain, the 1995 Mickey Mouse short. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's mixed feelings about, you know, Runaway Brain, because when it was done, you know, they were trying to make Mickey a little edgier. And I think when you watch that cartoon, he comes off as being sort of, you know, uh, lecherous and lascivious uh, towards Minnie. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, some of that subject matter, uh, uh, you know, rubs some people at the company the wrong way. So they, they, they aren't putting that film out anywhere, I guess. I don't know if it's going to be on Disney plus or not, but you know what, that that's, you know, they're, they've got a brand to protect. 
and uh, and that kind of thinking ebbs and flows uh, over the years. I, I mean, a perfect example was when we did Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Sure. People at the company thought it was too scary for the Disney Animation core audience, and so they didn't release it as Disney Animation. They released it under the Touchstone banner. Uh, and all these years later, there's such a huge following and there's, there, there's such you know, a big fan base for that film. Uh, it's no longer a touchstone film. It's a Disney film. It's Disney animation, you know? So, you know, from, from my standpoint, you know, the, the thinking on some of this stuff just ebbs and flows as the years go on and uh, as norms change and uh, uh, people view things differently. Yeah, I've always found the the distribution part to be really fascinating uh, in terms of what gets released under um, the different banners, at least when Disney was really utilizing Touchstone more. And that actually connects to a, another question I have for you on, on the shorts front, um, part of the, the team for the Lorenzo short uh, with the, the very clever and interesting cat. That was ultimately released with uh, Racing Helen, is that correct? Uh, you probably know better than me. Uh, I, I, I seem to recall that. The, yeah. the Kate yeah, Hudson it was, film. It was released at, at the head of uh, a live action film. Uh, so it had a theatrical run because it did get a, an Academy nomination. Yeah, I always thought that was such a, a, a curious uh, film for it to be uh, positioned with, um, as opposed to like a, a Disney family film at the time. Well, also you have to look at Lorenzo. It was a very different film uh you know the soundtrack was argentinian tango music and and that really that short film is really all mike gabriel mike gabriel was the the writer the director the production designer he he painted uh the backgrounds i mean it was like a one-man band i i was i was there to help him out with some stuff but i mean it was all mike gabriel you know and, and a handful of other people but but that was his vision and and it's a beautiful film i mean i i think it's a wonderful short film uh that hasn't got as much airplay as it should yeah i i agree i know it was released as part of the um disney animation studios short film collection yes um blue right which was nice because they put together a lot of the the shorts that otherwise wouldn't have gone as much attention yeah exactly i mean little match girl there was uh uh, one by one, which was Lab O M, uh, and I, I actually got a co-director credit on that because the director who was working on it uh, left the studio mid-production, and I, I jumped in and helped get it finished. That's it's awesome. I, I really like being able to see all those films and um, all those shorts in, in one really cool package. Yeah, uh, I, I know that you are. Uh, a busy person and working on many projects and more recently as we've talked about too you've become quite the author can you talk about some of your books under um in the works because i i understand that uh, nightmare before christmas uh, piece is one of them yeah you know in fact i just traded some emails this morning uh with some images and things because that book is being laid out right now it's slated it's it was supposed to come out in June of twenty of twenty this coming June. From what I understand, it's going to come out in June of twenty one. So 
your guess is as good as mine. I I've I wrote the book and turned in the manuscript and went through all the editorial revisions and everything like a year ago, year and a half ago. So at some point the book is going to come out. I think uh, I believe it will. So. I know, I know there's going to be a ton of folks who are going to really want that on their Christmas list or holiday well, list. You know, I, I have to tell you, I, I kind of approached that project very differently because I had worked on the film. In fact, when Disney uh, Publishing uh, came to me and asked if I would do that book, um, I said, you know, I worked on the film and they were like, oh, we had no idea, you know, so I, I had, a, I did a little bit of work on that film. I, I wasn't, uh, nearly, uh, you know, like the rest of the crew who put in, you know, uh, uh, a year and a half or two years working on that movie. I, I helped out in, in the visual effects capacity, uh, on it. But, um, what was nice was I knew a lot of the artists that worked on it. I knew Henry Selleck, and uh, uh, and uh, I was able to, you know, and Tim I didn't really know very well, but you know he knew who I was, and I knew who, obviously who he was. But uh, I was able to go and interview all of these people that worked on the film, uh, animators and production designers and, uh, you know, the filmmakers, uh, uh, and production management people. And so I, I, I wrote that as sort of a behind the scenes of how Nightmare Before Christmas was made. And, uh, and there's a lot of, um, uh, great information in there. I don't think people have, have heard before or read before. And there's a lot of great images, uh, because as I was interviewing people who worked on the film, I I was asking them, hey, you know, do you have any pictures? Do you have any of this? Do you have any of that? And uh, and people were freely giving me scans of stuff. So there's going to be a lot of images in that book that people have never seen before, which is really exciting. Oh, how fantastic. So I know we'll all be eagerly awaiting whenever that release date is totally settled. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't know when that'll be, but uh, hopefully uh, it will come out by June of 21. Very cool. Well, before we let you go, I want to make sure I ask you um, some Disney-related questions that I ask all of my guests. It's a segment called Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers, and it's all about you and sharing some of your favorite Disney-related things or things that speak to you as it pertains to Disney music and Disney books. So are you ready, Dave? Yeah, go ahead. So on the music front, I'm wondering, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Gosh, uh, it's probably got to be Pinocchio, because Pinocchio was my favorite animated film uh, from that time period, you know, uh, the, from the original Golden Age, really. And, and I had... I had seen that in a re-release in the 60s and was just blown away by it. Um, but you know, on the music front, the, the one thing I would say is I don't think enough attention has been paid to, uh, some of the in-house music composers, uh, that were at the studio, uh, uh, over the years. And, and I'd love to see them do a book on, uh, on the composers, um, uh, you know, uh, 
from from the early years uh and uh some of the guys that wrote some of the songs uh for the, for some of those seminal animated films you know frank churchill right. and, uh oliver wallace and um you know the the george brun and you know the, there's a whole slew of them uh and i just don't uh, think uh uh that they've gotten enough exposure you know so but you know again the flip side is i'll tell you that the disney music group has really done a tremendous job in uh again preserving and restoring uh soundtracks uh for all these films yeah kind of along those lines i'd love to see the legacy co collection continue yeah yeah you know i i wrote some i wrote some of the uh liner notes for some of those cd uh collections that's awesome. Yeah, I, I feel like, was it maybe Beauty and the Beast was among the, the more recent ones, but like in 04 and 05, there were just so many of those releases, and it was extremely exciting as a Disney fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm awaiting one for uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully they'll get around to it. That'd be cool. Well, one of my other music-related questions, and perhaps you answered this in a sense, but what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? I just don't know. That's quite all right. There's a, there's definitely a lot of them. Yeah. Um, this uh, this third music question uh, might be a little bit easier. Uh, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh, gosh probably let it go when it on the original uh the, the original frozen you know because it was just being played everywhere you know it was um you know when when that when the first first frozen came out i i i think you, like you couldn't escape that song that's very true very true uh, on the on the book front, I have two questions for you. What is the most recent Disney or Disney related book that you've read? Uh, let's see. I am in the midst of. Uh, I was just picking them up off my credenza. Uh, actually, there's two of them. Uh, one is called Three Years in Wonderland: The Disney Brothers, C.V. Wood, and the Making of the Great American Theme Park by Todd James Pierce. That's one. And the other one I just got, but I really haven't gotten into. I've, I've kind of peeked at a couple of things, is Walt Disney's ultimate inventor, the genius of, of iWorks. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, I, I haven't read it completely. I've kind of read a few little passages and sections in it. And it is a very technical book. Um, I, I just want to forewarn people uh, who who may go out and get it. it there, there's a lot of technical processes that are that are explained. So um, but but there's some some fabulous pictures, early pictures of Ub and some some pictures that that his son Don Iwerks, uh, you know, had from the family photo albums and things like that. So I'm looking forward to really diving into that book. But, uh, you know, I, I'm just I buy books all the time and and I've got piles of them uh, that I use, uh, you know, that I read and and also 
keep going back to for reference. Uh, so there's a lot of ter terrific books out there. Yeah, that's that's always my challenge. There's there's too many books and, and too little time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Dave, uh, the second and final book related question is, and this might be a dangerous question because I know you're writing a lot, but if you could write a, a Disney book on any topic that you haven't covered yet, um, what, what might it be about? Gosh, uh, there's a number of them that I'm not, I don't want to tip my hand on because uh, I have them on a list of things I do want to do. But actually, there's one that I'd love to do as sort of a companion volume or, or, or a follow-on. Uh, it, it would be a chronological uh, book on uh, all of the Alice comedies. Oh, very cool. And, and that's sort of a companion to the Oswald book, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that they've done enough with the Alice comedies. And, you know, a bunch of them are falling into public domain this year. Um, and, you know, I just think it's, it, to me, I look at it more as a, you know, it's, it's a piece of history. It, it's a piece of history that should be documented. You know, yeah. whether I do it or somebody else does it, you know, it, it just should be documented. No, those are those are very good points. Uh, a final question for you. Um, this is a random question that changes with every guest. Um, along the lines of Disney short films, uh, what Disney short film do you feel has never received its due as a masterpiece? Uh, well, I thought you were going to say what's your favorite Disney short, <laughs> which I which I would tell you hands down is the Old Mill. Okay, sure. uh, the Old Mill is one of my all-time favorite short films. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, but as far as a short that hasn't really gotten its due, I think, you know, like I, I would say uh, One by One was a short that was done in the early 2000s that didn't really get, uh, they didn't really know what to do with it. And it just kind of got thrown onto a, a DVD for a, a, a direct-to-video sequel, Lion King 2. Um, and, and I don't think that really got, got much of a much airplay out there. And I, I think it's actually a beautiful short. Uh, uh, Pichot Hunt, who was the director on it, and, and really it was his vision to do that short, um, uh, I, I just don't think uh, I, you know, enough people really saw it. Well, yeah, I, I would hope what through Disney Plus or or even the um, some of these other uh, outlets to to watch these short films, maybe maybe it will get more attention. Yeah, I, I think it would be nice. You know, I mean, uh, there there there's so many things out there that you know, there's so much stuff in in the Disney library that you know, I I hope there's people there that you know. Could, could, you know, will see the value to some of this material that isn't, you know, uh, household name kind of films, you know, the, the, there's a tremendous amount of stuff in it, uh, uh, in that library that, you know, can be called out and, and reconstituted in any number of ways that would, would be just terrific for people to see, you know, even like on the, the educational front, the Disney educational films, there's a lot right. of really tremendous 
uh, uh, little films uh, in the educational catalog that I think are, you know, some of them are kitschy and, 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 you know, they're so out of date, they're entertaining, they're funny, you know what I mean? Uh, and I'd love to see, uh, see them do something with some of that material. Yeah, well, you know, I, I love the old Jiminy Cricket shorts and, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. All those educational uh, bits. Uh, the, there's some really uh, great stuff in there. Well, and they're also reflective of the era and their history, history lesson in themselves, too. Yeah, absolutely. Without question. Uh, finally, Dave, how can listeners follow your work and or get in touch with you on, on different media? Uh, you know, I'm on uh, Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram, and I also uh, post some stuff to uh, my YouTube channel. Um, they can find me on YouTube, uh, but the best way is to uh, go to my website, which is www.davidbossard, all one word, davidbossard.com. And there's a tremendous amount of uh, information up there. I've got uh, like 50 articles. I've got essays. There's bits about my books. Um, there's uh, free stuff that people can send for. If they, if they have one of my books and they want it signed, I have book plates that I signed and send to people. They just go to the free stuff tab on my website. And, um, you know, and I, and I do respond to people. I, I think sometimes people are shocked that I respond, but you know, so, somebody, you know, it's not like I'm getting overwhelmed with questions, but people will send me questions and I write them back. So I'm happy to do it. Well, responsiveness is always appreciated and, and so is good conversation. So I really value your time and, um, thank you for a great retrospective of, of Fantasia 2000 and some of your other projects. I really very much Elliot. I, I have to say thank you very much for, for having me on. I, I really appreciate it, Brett. Uh, I hope that, uh, you know, you have me back at some point in the future to talk about other things. And uh, it, it's always it's always great to reminisce. It's always great to answer questions and uh, offer up thoughts. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Brett. And thank you again to Dave for coming on to Notably Disney to talk about Roy E. Disney in the prior episode, and even a bit more of Roy, uh, but primarily on Fantasia 2000 and some other efforts on this episode. Welcome back anytime. And I would encourage you, as Dave said, check out his website. There's a lot of cool resources on there. It's a great way of cataloging his various projects over the years, and there's some cool original content for you to check out as well. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.
Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 